we lift up tonight, I pray as I get into the Word, there'll be a fresh anointing on the Word right now. Holy Spirit, that you'll fill and brood over this time in the Word. And Lord, that you get everybody just captivated and focused to give you their best ear, their full attention. I ask you, Lord, to anoint eyes to see and ears to hear that we'll have eyes and ears of the Spirit. Anoint our minds and our concentration to be able to focus and get everything out of this that your will to be done. Of course, we bind away any hindrance or distraction. Lord, anoint our hearts. Let them be settled. Lord, I pray that as I speak this word, that you'd prepare everybody's hearts and minds to be good fertile soil that's going to be hearing this now and in the future. And that you would speak through me under a mighty anointing, Lord, and let everything be spoken that the Spirit of God wants through my mouth tonight. And it will go out as living seeds of truth that are sown into good fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Holy Spirit, and take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. I thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for moving in lives. Even as I'm preaching, let your glory settle in and rest on people, but in a way that will cause energy and life and strength and focus. And Lord, I pray that people would be in the Spirit, that just literally just seeing what you want them to see and hearing what you want them to hear. Not in the flesh, but really in the Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, for this. In the mighty name of Jesus, we bless you, Lord. Man, he's here. I feel that. All right, I'm going to get into some teaching on the end times. I'm beginning a series, okay, but in this series... I'm going to be covering a lot. I'm going to take my time. And I'm just trying to get myself together. The, the glory has been on me really strong. I'm just trying to... You guys ever been there? Let's get focused. All right. So anyway, I'm going to be doing this end time series. And tonight I'm going to do more of an introduction than I am anything else, okay? I'm going to cover quite a bit, but I feel like God's going to uh, speak to you through this. Some really interesting things. But before it's all said and done, I will try to get into Daniel and Revelation, talk about things like the Antichrist, the Mark of the Beast, and all that. I'll try to cover a lot of ground. Because there's a lot about the end times, and the Lord wants us to be ready. Alright. So I'm going to start with Revelation 5. And I saw the, at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. That's a typo there. It should be scroll written inside... And on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open a scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep. John said, I began to weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is overcome so as to open the scroll... And it's seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, the elders and the lamb standing. At, there was a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out throughout the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him, him who sat on the throne. This is Jesus, the lamb. Took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the scroll 
and to break its seal. For thou wast slain and made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will rule or reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard many voice of many angels. I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders. And a number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, "Worthy is the Lamb that is slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, "Amen." And the elders fell down and worshipped. Yeah, that's a good scripture. Isn't it? So, I want you to just picture this with me. God the Father had a scroll, and on the scroll, back in those days, a king would take some kind of wax from a candle and would pour it, and the wax would go over the scroll, and they'd have a ring. But had their insignia on it, and they would touch it, and it would seal it, and it couldn't be opened. It was, it was meant for a certain recipient, and it was not to be opened until that recipient got it. Okay, and a courier would take it to whoever it's supposed to go to, and that person would would take and they would press down, they'd break the seal, and they would open the scroll, and they would begin to read. Now this scroll that we saw in in the scriptures here had writing on the front, but also on the back. I'm going to talk to you about what the scroll is. But this scroll also had seven seals. It didn't just have one. There were seven places where, you know, there was wax across there, some kind of insignia. And there were seven seals across. Let me give you a few quick things. I'm going to explain this. I love this scripture. Jesus is seen in the Bible as the Lamb of God and the Lion. The Lamb shows His gentle nature. Him being willing to lay down His life as a sacrifice. The Lion is Jesus being the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Coming to take over a martial God, a military God. Okay, So you see both the kindness and the sternness of God. Amen? You're just looking at this real quick. You can see a glimpse into heaven here. You're seeing a glimpse into something in the future. I believe that we're moving into times when we're probably going to see the seals if we haven't already seen some of them pop open. Because in the Bible, the seals, as Jesus began to crack and open a seal, things began to break out in the earth. And I believe that even now, that the Lord is beginning to open up these seals. And what the scroll was that the Father handed to Jesus, that nobody else was worthy to open it. It was the title deed to the earth. You hear what I'm saying? What Adam forfeited and gave over to the devil, Jesus bought it back by his blood, and nobody else was found worthy. But it is literally the title deed to the earth. That's what the scroll is. And Jesus... I'll get to it later, but He redeems because of the cross. He's bought back everything that Adam forfeited. Okay? So let me take you back a little bit in time. So God creates heaven and earth and He puts Adam and Eve there. The earth was already there, formless and void, but God creates, He recreates, really, 
the earth. He creates this place that's a paradise. There's no sin. There's no sickness. Adam and Eve did not know what it was like to have a headache. They didn't know what it was like to be sick. They didn't know what it was like to have the flu. They didn't know what it was like to grow old. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the earth, He created them in a way to where they were at their prime. They were never born little babies. They were, they were created as an adult state, but they were created in perfection. And they never knew what it was like to be tired. They never knew what it was like to experience any type of pain. God had not only made the earth a beautiful place, but especially the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a literal paradise. And God has always wanted a family. Angels are created to worship God. They're servants. And God loves His angels. But they weren't really a family. And God's always wanted a family. And so He wanted to create a race of beings known as humanity. And He wanted to create them that would be made in His image. And they would willingly love Him and worship Him and choose Him. It wouldn't be forced. They, they weren't servants. The angels were more like if, if you had a mansion and you had you know, the butler and the maid. They were more of that. But the, the father wanted a family. And so he created Adam. He formed him out of the ground, kind of like you would gather up and make maybe a snowman, just to give you some kind of example. Or create some kind of a sandcastle or a sandman. Okay? He formed him... He did. He formed him out of the dirt. And then he breathed life into him, kind of like a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, the Ruach of God, the breath of God. He, he pushed down into that, that clay temple. He pushed down into that the life of God. And the Bible says he became a living soul. And he was created in the image and the likeness of God. Two things. The image of God is the spirit. The likeness of God was the soul. So he was created in the image and the likeness of God. Placed in that paradise. And I don't think people have any idea the authority and the brilliance that God had invested in humanity because we look at it from a fallen perspective. But when God created Adam, there was an authority there that he had dominion over the earth, that he could speak into the heavenlies, he could speak down into the oceans, And everything would obey him. It would line up to whatever he declared. He would stand there flat-footed and make a declaration in the heavens and it would move. He was so brilliant. It was just by God's revelation, what God put in him. He was so brilliant that he never had to go to school or anything. He knew and understood zoology. He understood biology. He understood how the earth worked. And I'm sure from our perspective, his authority realm extended to the universe as we know it. And God would come down to Adam every day in the cool of the day and would walk with him. And would talk with him. The cool of the day is in Hebrew the breath of the day or whatever. It's, it's a, But anyway, he would come down and he would fellowship with Adam. And they would walk together and they would talk together. And that's what God wanted. That was, he created, he now is starting to have a family. That's what he wanted. 
And so God sees that even though Adam is there and Adam was brilliant, he knew how to name the animals. He, he knew how everything worked. And in the garden, it was, it was joyful labor. It wasn't something that was difficult. It was more in the way of just weeding it or you know, grooming it the way he wanted it to be. It was something he loved and enjoyed. The waters there were pure. There was no such thing as dirty, polluted waters. There wasn't such thing as pollution. The waters were pure. Everything was clean. There was no sin, so there was no sickness. There was no infections or anything like that. Or pollution. It was beautiful. But God saw that Adam was alone, and so He put him to sleep and took a rib out and created, out of the rib, He created woman to be His helpmate and to be with Him. She was made from Him, and this is kind of deep, but if you read the Bible, it says that God called them Adam. So, God saw them together and it was almost like pulling out of Adam a counterpart, if you will. And they were both made in the image and likeness of God. And God spoke over them and said, I want you to have dominion. I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to multiply and increase. Because again, God wanted a family. And so God would come down and walk with them and spend time with them. And He already gave Adam as, as the head of the house. He had already given him instructions. He said, Adam... God doesn't want an arranged marriage. He wants people that choose Him. And so for that to be the case, there always had to be a choice. Do you see what I'm saying? If God had not put the tree in the garden, and there was no choice, there was no alternative, then they would have no choice but to love and serve Him. They didn't have another choice of any kind. And so God spoke to Adam and said, Listen, there's all these trees... Everything in this garden is yours. I'm putting one tree in the garden of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm asking you not to eat of it. And that the day you eat of it, you'll die. One tree. Okay. Sure, tens of thousands of others. One tree. And God has spoken that to Adam. Adam, I'm sure, told Eve. Because when the devil came and... The way that the enemy strategized to get to Adam. See, when Satan fell, I'm telling you all this for a reason to lead up to the end times. Okay, When Satan fell, he was probably the worship leader, tabrets and pipes within him. And he was an anointed cherub. I'm sure that he was, he was absolutely beautiful. He was extremely brilliant. He was a powerful, created being. And by all accounts, he was one of the higher-ups in God's kingdom. Okay, And when he fell and led that rebellion... A third of the angels that went with him, God had stripped Lucifer of everything. I mean, he lost everything. He was stripped of any authority that he had whatsoever. So when he was cast to the earth like lightning and hit the ground, and then God created Adam, and there was such an authority there, once God created Adam... Lucifer lusted after that. Lucifer lusted after what he saw in Adam. Do you hear what I'm saying? He coveted. He wanted that authority. He saw something invested in Adam that he so wanted. Because he lost it in heaven. So he began to strategize, how am I going to get this from Adam? And he decided that he would approach Eve in a deceptive way. And that he would come through the serpent. And he went through the serpent using that as a vessel. And he deceived her. 
And when Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what people need to understand is, is that Adam, literally, the Bible says you become a slave to the one you obey. Adam gave the devil his authority on a silver platter. Everything that God had invested in man, the authority, because Adam submitted to the devil, he became a slave to the devil, he gave the devil his authority. But what you can understand is God did not view the devil as being a threat to Adam and Eve. That's why people say, well, why did God create the devil? God didn't create the devil. He created an angel. An angel chose to rebel, just like many people within the sound of my voice have chosen to rebel in the past. And just like a lot of people in this world choose to rebel. You know, God created a beautiful, holy being who became you know, arrogant about himself and began to rebel against God. So God didn't create the devil. The devil became that because of sin. And people say, well, why was there a tree? Because there had to be a choice. You don't want an arranged marriage. You don't want somebody marrying you because they have to and they really don't love you. And God don't want it either. He wants people to have a choice in front of them and they love, they love God and they choose Him. That's what He wants. And He didn't view the devil as being a threat because the devil at that time didn't have any authority. or any, you know, All Adam had to do was just get out of here and he would have took off running. But the way that Satan came was crafty and deceptive. And of course, he pulled them down. You know the story. Once they had sinned, they could no longer eat of the tree of life because God said, now that they've sinned, I cannot have them living forever. And so they're going to have to be removed from the garden and they cannot eat of the tree of life anymore. So he removed them. The very next generation from this, you see murder already in the earth. What started as just eating a fruit that was forbidden had already in one generation escalated to murder. And because of sin entering the world, you began to see creeping into the world sickness, oppression, disease. People began to age. People began to die. All the things that God did not want began to creep in because of sin. And mankind became so wicked, I don't want to get bogged down on the Nephilim thing, but man became so wicked that even in Genesis 6, fallen angels were having sex with women and they were literally giants in the land and the earth was filled with wickedness and perversion. The Bible said it was so wicked that the inclination, the imagination of man was continually on evil. And the Bible says that God grieved that He made man. But see, God had always had a plan. And He planned, in, once that happened, once Adam fell, God told Adam, He prophesied to him. He said, there's going to be someone that's going to come from the seed of the woman. And Satan will strike his heel, but he will crush his head. And He prophesied the coming of the Christ to Adam and Eve. In other words, God said, I'm going to send a Savior to you. And after he prophesied to Adam and Eve the coming of Christ, the Bible says that God killed animals and clothed them with those skins. And he was teaching Adam and Eve that for, that for their sin there had to be the shedding of blood. See, before Adam and Eve sinned, you, I don't want to get into the wording too much, but they had the glory of God on them and that's why they were naked and they didn't know it. There was the glory covering them. 
But once they sin, the glory lifted and, and, you know. And so God had this plan, this redemptive plan that began immediately. And it's taken 6,000 years to bring all this thing that God had planned for all of it to fall into place. But he prophesied it right there to Adam and Eve. And he showed them that there had to be the shedding of blood. There was a coming Messiah. And he covered them in animal skins. I'm, I'm sure it doesn't say. I'm sure it was a, a lamb skins. You know, because he was saying the Lamb of God will come. So Adam and Eve began to teach that to their descendants. And the earth had become so wicked by Noah's day that God was going to wipe everything out. But he found Noah and he found a righteous man. And his heart went out and he... See, here's what you got to understand. God is faithful to his word. One of the reasons why he didn't wipe everybody out was because he prophesied they were becoming a Messiah. And see, Satan was trying to send in those fallen angels to pollute the human race. From that prophecy, put yourself for just a moment in that place where you're looking at Lucifer and God's telling him there's a Messiah coming who's going to crush your head. From that moment... Lucifer began to say to himself, I've got to stop this thing from happening. Why do you think that Satan is so bent on the destruction of Israel right now? Because he's trying to stop the Messiah from coming. And God saved Noah. It was a picture and type of the rapture. When the wrath of God came down on the earth, Noah and his family went up. And when the wrath of God subsided, no one in his family came back down and repopulated. But God spared Noah, had mercy on him. And then, 2,000 years from Adam's fall, came Abraham. And God found a man that he could re-enter society through. And Abraham walked with God. The Bible says Abraham was God's friend. And God could trust him. He made a covenant with him. God makes covenants with men, not organizations. He made a covenant with Abraham. And it was a blood covenant. And he said that your descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And the sands on the seashore speak of natural Israel. And the stars in the sky speak of spiritual Israel, the church. Adam lived his life, Isaac, Jacob, then Joseph, they're in Egypt. And God remembered his promise of a coming Messiah. He's always had a plan. Back in those early days, they were priests. We don't know a lot about them, but there was Melchizedek, there was Moses' father-in-law, but there were priests that God had in place. And the men that were righteous men would shed blood for their family like Job. But God began to transition that. See, all the people that died in the Old Testament, that died righteously, there was blood that was shed for their sin from animals, and they were looking to Christ with faith. They were looking to the coming Messiah, and they were saved through blood and faith in Christ, just like you and I are saved. And so before Moses, they would still shed blood from animals. They got that from Adam and Eve. It passed down. They would shed blood. Just like in Job's story. But then God chooses Moses and Moses comes in. He brings the law. He begins to set up a society. The nation of Israel. The priesthood changes. And now that it, the salvation is, is coming from the Jews at that time. 
Then after that, the tabernacle was set up, the law was written, God had sent His prophets. There were 400 years of silence. And then Christ comes in the fullness of time. I'm going to talk about Jesus a little bit. Spend some time there in just a moment. But Jesus, if you read what we believe, it almost at times seems like a fairy tale, but I believe it. And I know you do too. How many knows Jesus was born of a virgin? She was a virgin. Never had sex with a man, but the Holy Spirit moved over her, brooded over her, and supernaturally she conceived the Son of God, who is God Himself that became man. See, God has created us in His image, spirit, soul, and body. We're three, but we're one. We're spirit, soul, and body. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're three, but they're one. Jesus came from a virgin. He was the highest order of humanity. The Bible called Him the last Adam. Everything the first Adam forfeited, Jesus got it back. I'm going to share a little bit more about that here in a moment. But think about Jesus' miracles. His first miracle was at a wedding. And we're going to see Him, the bride will see Him at a marriage feast, a marriage supper of the Lamb. But His first miracle was a wedding. You see His life, He healed the sick, He cleansed lepers, He drove out demons, He raised the dead, the Son of God in the earth. All of His miracles were meant to show God's love for people. They were not to show off. When He walked on water, He did it in private. Why? Because He wasn't about trying to show... He didn't get the multitudes there and then write His name in the stars. Whenever He displayed His power, He was doing it in a way to show His love for humanity by healing those that were hurting. Jesus' death. The seven feast days of Israel are very prophetic. And I do need to share a little bit about this as I go. But see, Jesus, the, the Jewish people, at, around our springtime, the first part of their year, they have Passover. I'm going to explain this in a nutshell. They have Passover. On Passover, they, they you know, kill the lamb. They, eat, they roast the lamb. They eat the lamb. And they remember how God brought them out of Egypt. That's Passover. Right after Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then the first fruits, and it's all run together. See, when Jesus died on the cross, He literally died on Passover Day as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the earth. He was the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, who died on Passover. His body did not decompose. His body was put into the tomb and did not decompose because it was without sin. And that's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then Jesus raised from the dead in three days. See, when Jesus was down in the heart of the earth, there was a place down there. There was hell, but there was also a place known as paradise. And that place was not the best place. It was kind of like a really nice apartment, but in a really bad neighborhood. Okay, It wasn't the best place. But it was where God put all of the righteous people who died before Christ. And they were there. It was called Abraham's bosom. They were protected there. And see, when Jesus died on the cross, and, and that was the Passover, He was the you know, unleavened bread. His body was there in the tomb. He went down into the underworld. 
and got in Satan's face and he took the keys from him of death, hell, and the grave. He goes and he declares to the underworld, it's done, I have conquered. He made the declaration. He goes over to paradise and he takes all of them out of paradise with him and he comes up with them. That's why it says he led captivity captive. He pulled them out. Now, when they're coming up, God allowed that some of them were raised from the dead and were seen by many. They walked the streets. So if you lived in those days where Jesus died on the cross, you saw that the skies began to get dark around noon. You know what that was? That was the sin of the entire world coming on the Son of God. That's what that was. It was darkness in the natural, but it was sin. And it came. It became dark. And if you were there, you would have seen the, the sin of the world. You would have felt the earthquake that hit and split open the temple and ripped the veil. And then... You start seeing dead people raised from the dead. And you just see, you know, somebody knocking at the door and somebody opens the door and, and, and there's somebody standing there and goes, Hey, you remember me? And they say, You know, you look familiar. You look just like my Uncle Charlie's. I am Uncle Charlie. And all these people start being, you know, raised from the dead. Jesus was now, as he raised from the dead, the stone was rolled away by the angels. He raised from the dead. Mary was the first one to see him. Or Martha. It was Mary, I'm sorry. And she saw him and she ran back and told him. But the thing was that Jesus, now, this was the first fruits. He was the first fruits of those that would experience the resurrection. And Jesus walked with them. He was seen by people. He appeared to the disciples. He reinstated Peter. He ate fish with them, but he didn't drink with them at all because he said, I'm not going to drink of this cup again until you're with me at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then Jesus, he, he stood on the Mount of Olives. He was talking to them. Once again, they wanted to know God's plan in detail. Peter's like, you know, the times and seasons of the Lord. But the Lord said, listen, don't worry about all the times and seasons. You worry about this. The Holy Spirit's about to come on you in power. And you're going to go forth and be my witnesses. And then Jesus floated up in the sky and disappeared in the clouds. And can't you just see them all just standing there, you know, looking up? And the angels that were there said, why do you stand here? This same Jesus that ascended will come back in like manner. And so Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you be clothed with power from on high. Stay there. I'm going to send the promise to my Father. Fifty days later, the Jewish people have been celebrating Pentecost forever. They've been celebrating Pentecost for like a thousand years. You understand the feast days, how prophetic they are. On the day of Pentecost, not the day before, not the day after, the day of Pentecost, when the Jewish people were having their Pentecost holiday, okay, they're celebrating this feast, the Holy Spirit comes in in an awesome way. And then in the feast, you've got a long interval. All this happens at the beginning of the year, and you've got a long interval. And then you've got the last feast. The New Year, Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And what that represents is Jesus' is coming. 
That's what it speaks of. See, when Jesus comes, it talks about a shofar blast. Did you know that Jesus was not born in December like a lot of people think? He probably was born around these holidays, like the Feast of Tabernacles. It doesn't say for sure, but you know what I believe? Just as Jesus fulfilled the first feasts, I believe He's going to fulfill the last feast. And the reason why it talks about a trumpet blast, a shofar blast is coming is because most likely, we don't know the day nor the hour, but most likely He's going to come in those fe- that feast season. And what you have, there's so many pictures and, ty- and types of this in the Bible, but you have Jesus coming, and then you have like the Day of Atonement, where we're with the marriage supper of the Lamb. The earth will be in the tribulation, but we're in the marriage supper of the Lamb, those that are the bride. And then you have the tabernacles as we come back on the earth, the tabernacle with Him. Jesus is now, right now, at the Father's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. He will return to earth. Now let me explain the great high priest. When Jesus was born, this is an awesome scripture. Let me skip to John 12 for a moment. The, the um, Greeks came and they said, they spoke to, um, I can't remember which disciple, they spoke to him and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. You know, that's what people really want is they want to see Jesus, isn't it? They don't want to see church or religion, they want to see Jesus. And the Gentiles had come to Israel and they said, Sir, that we might see Jesus. And that's what people are looking for. Now, when you look at Jesus, what you got to understand, number one, is He was born in the line of David. So therefore, He was born king. We know that He had an office of a prophet. But what I'm going to show you is so awesome. In Hebrews 7, it says that another priest arise, another priest will arise in the order of Melchizedek. The Old Testament... Um, priest by the name of Melchizedek was a priest to the Gentiles before Moses. This was before Moses and the law and the tabernacle. Before any of that there was a priesthood that was in that was set in the earth by God and we don't know a lot about it but it was a priesthood among the Gentiles. Now I'm going to show you something. You're really going to like this when I get to the end of this. Melchizedek the name means king of righteousness. We know Jesus was the king. So what God started with, number one, is He started with some kind of priesthood in the earth that we don't know a lot about, but in the order of Melchizedek. Then He switched from priest to now high priest with Aaron. So He goes from priest to high priest. But you see here in Hebrews, it says that Jesus became our great high priest. So it goes from priest to high priest to great high priest. And it says Jesus was in the order of Melchizedek. The Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood during Moses' day with Aaron and his family was established. But it was pointing toward Jesus. Now, you remember John the Baptist? John, in Luke chapter 1, it talks about John's dad and his mother were both in the line of Aaron. See, what a lot of people don't realize is, is that John the Baptist, I'm sure to a degree, he did have this crazy wild eyed look. Okay? I'm sure that he did to some degree. He's an awesome man of God. He probably had a crazy hairdo. And you know, he ate the locust and wild honey. 
And he was out there as a prophet of God. But what people don't understand is, is that he was, he inherited Elijah's mantle. So he was a prophet, but he was also a direct descendant of Aaron, which made him legitimately the, the high priest of Israel. The reason why Caiaphas was in that office was the reason why a lot of people are in offices is because it was political. The Roman government knew that Caiaphas could be easily controlled and manipulated. He was just a hireling, so they put him there in that position to keep order among the Jewish people. And when Jesus goes to John to be baptized, a lot of people don't really understand what was going on because they think to themselves, Jesus was so righteous... And John even said, why am I baptizing you? But see, what they don't understand is that Jesus did not go there for the same reason other people went there. The reason Jesus went there was because the priesthood was passed through the Old Testament. It was always passed. The, the high priest would pass his office through water baptism. And Jesus went there as the king in the line of David. But when he went down under the water at the hand of John, who was the legitimate high priest of Israel in the spirit, when he came up, he came up in the order of Melchizedek as the king of righteousness. That's why Jesus said, let's fulfill all righteousness by doing this. And that's why John said, now he must increase and I must decrease, because I have just, John basically said, I have just passed to him the prophetic office that I was in, and I've just passed to him the high priesthood that was in my family line, I have passed that now to Him, and He must increase and I must decrease. And so Jesus came up out of that water and the Spirit of God came upon Him in power and He came up as King, Prophet, and Priest. And He became the great, the great High Priest in the order of Melchizedek. Why is that such a big deal? Because when He was to die at Passover... He had already been beaten. And see, they would take the Passover lamb and they would examine that lamb and they would make sure there was no defects. They had taken Jesus as the Lamb of God and John saw it. John being the legitimate high priest of Israel before he baptized Jesus, when he first saw Jesus, he looked at him and said, that's the Lamb of God. He had a right to say that because he was the high priest. And Jesus was stuck there. He was examined. He was examined by Jew and Gentile and they could find no fault in Him. And Jesus stood before Caiaphas who was just a hireling. And because of His office uh, that He was appointed to by man, He pointed at Jesus and said, I command you on oath that you tell us if you're the Son of God. And under Jewish law, Jesus had to speak. And so Jesus hadn't said a word that whole time. Here they are spitting at Him. They're, they're, they're yelling at Him. They're falsely accusing Him of everything. And He just stood there and took it for you and me. But when the high priest, the, the one who had that seat, commanded Him, I command you that you speak to Me, He had to obey. And Jesus couldn't sin by disobeying the law. So He spoke out and said, It is as you say. And you're going to see Me on the clouds coming. You remember? And Caiaphas, under Jewish law, the high priest of Israel could not tear that blue tunic. That was a big deal. It was reinforced there and they could not tear it. It was against their law to tear it. And the very next day, 
Caiaphas was supposed to be overseeing the Passover lamb getting sacrificed. And right there when Jesus admitted to being the Son of God, Caiaphas gets all angry and upset and rips the very robe that he's not supposed to under Jewish law. And those people knew the law. So I promise you every mouth hung open when he did that. And not only did they see him break the law, but they also probably were thinking, what did you do that tonight? Tomorrow, you're supposed to be overseeing the Passover lamb. But you just broke Jewish law. So who was it that was going to be able to do it? The next day, Jesus' tunic was taken from him. But interestingly enough, even though lots were cast for it, it was never torn. Caiaphas, Caiaphas ripped his, but Jesus' was never torn. Jesus was the high priest, the great high priest, but he was also the Lamb of God. So I want you to picture this. In the morning time, around 9 a.m., Jesus is, is hung on the cross. At that time, the first Passover lamb is being killed. Three hours later, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Darkness comes over the land. And Jesus hangs there for a total of six hours. But Jesus, being the high priest, was overseeing Himself being the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. He was both priest and sacrifice. Caiaphas ruined his chance anyway. But Jesus was there, and the high priest of Israel would oversee the Passover and would spread out their hands like this and say, it is finished when it's done. Jesus had his hands spread out, and when it was done, after hanging there for six hours, he said, it is finished. And he declared it done. <coughs> And when Jesus had given up the ghost on the cross, the soldier had pierced his side and blood and water came out. And anybody knows anything about the tabernacle knows that the outer court has blood and water in it. And those Jewish people should have known that Jesus really was the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. He really was the King of the Jews and He really was the High Priest. And also anybody knows that when a woman gives birth, there's blood and water there. And Jesus was paying for children of God to be born into the kingdom of God. And also, what Adam had the rib removed from his side to create a bride, Jesus had his side pierced to have a bride. This is all preparation about the end times because I want you to understand who Jesus is. I want you to understand some of these things because it's going to play into Daniel and Revelation. There's seven dispensations that the Bible shows. God began with Adam and Eve. He prophesied to them. He continued through Abraham. He continued through Moses. And the children of Israel. All of it pointed to Jesus. Everything pointed to Jesus. But dispensations is a period of time when God was doing something in the earth and then it changed. There was the dispensation of the Garden of Eden time called the dispensation of innocence. Then there was the dispensation right after the fall of man called conscience. Conscience. 
Then there was a time of human government. Then there was a time around the Tower of Babel. And then you had the time, the dispensation of the Law and the Prophets, when God was moving through the children of Israel at that time. And now, what I'm trying to show you is, when Jesus came, it was such a radical change in priesthood. It was a radical change in the literally in the earth and the universe as we know it. Everything changed. The paradigm changed. That what God was doing through the nation of Israel to prepare for Christ's coming, now it was like the 69 weeks that Daniel was fulfilled, but it was like now became the church age, the age of grace, the 2,000 years known as the times of the Gentiles, where God is calling to the nations of the earth to come to Him. And that is the day and time that we live in. But let me show you something. It was 2,000 years from Adam's fall to Abraham. It was 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ. And it's been 2,000 years from Christ till now. We are in the very last days. And we're right at a place where there's about to be another dispensation change. Where God is going to shift. It's going to end the time of the Gentiles. And God's going to begin Jacob's trouble. The days of Jacob's trouble. See, there was 70 weeks Daniel was prophesied. The first 69 weeks were fulfilled right before Christ. And it was like God put a pause there. And He allowed 2,000 years of grace. See, when God the Father, when Jesus was on the cross, God the Father and God the Son had a blood covenant that took place at the cross. And because of that covenant between Father and Son, God has had incredible mercy on humanity. And He's given us 2,000 years of grace and mercy, the church age. But the Bible is clear that we are at a time when we need to be hearing about these things, preach like never before. But it's sad because there's not enough of it and people don't know. But God is about to remove those that are His bride and He's going to allow that 70th week of Daniel to kick in. And that's known as the tribulation time. It's a seven year period. It's the 70th week of Daniel. And what's going to happen is, is it okay I just walk through this real quick? Things are going to get darker in the earth, but they're going to get more glorious in the church. Revival is going to increase. Glory is going to increase. Fires of the Holy Spirit is going to increase. The church is going to become more and more book of Acts, but exceed the book of Acts. Okay, But the world is going to go darker and darker. Deeper. More depraved. And just like the stars in the night sky, you can't see them during the day, but the darker it gets, the more they shine, the more we see them. The darker the world gets, the more the church is going to shine. There's not going to be any more playing games people are going to be forced to choose. And the Bible says that Jesus won't come until there's a great falling away. It's happening now. There's people that are falling away right and left. Apostasy. They're turning their back on the Lord. And it also says that until the rise of the Antichrist, and that's a physical man. It's not a machine. It's a man. He's called the man of lawlessness. The son of perdition or the Antichrist. He will be a physical man. And He's going to be revealed. Those that are ready. And this is why 
a lot of people are confused about the rapture and some people don't even believe in it anymore is because there's not everybody's going to be raptured. You understand that? You know how many people out there right now profess Christianity that it's doubtful at best that they're going to be in heaven when they die, let alone raptured? Those that have made themselves ready. He's coming for those that have made themselves ready. Real fast, I'm not going to dwell on this, but remember Noah was a righteous man in a wicked generation. And he was a picture and type of the rapture, being pulled up. He was righteous. You've got to be righteous. That means you live right. You know, people want to live in sin and they get mad at God. You know, if, if, you're, if you're going to do this, let's say that you're in a house and all the doors are locked and there's, there's people out there that's got knives, guns, chains, and they're bent on your destruction. But all your doors are locked. If you're going to sin, what you're doing is, is you're going and you're unlocking doors and cracking them open, unlocking doors and cracking them open, and then going to sleep. And then whenever the devil comes in to steal, kill, and destroy, you get upset with God because he didn't protect you. You open the door. You let him in. Steal, the devil comes to steal, that's usually financial. Kill usually has to do with health problems. And destroy is cycles of destruction where you lose things. You lose jobs, family, relationships, whatever. It's just destruction. And people open the door through their sin, and the devil comes in to steal, kill, and destroy. But see, when Jesus comes, he's coming for a bride without spot or blemish. Amen? He's coming for a bride without spot or blemish. He's coming for a bride. See, there's a difference between the body and the bride, I believe. The body, you remember how God made man out of the dirt? The body of Christ seems to be earthly. But the bride of Christ is heavenly. There's a difference. There's a lot of people go to church, but there's a remnant that really know their God. There's a remnant. Those are the bride. And when Jesus comes, He's coming for the bride that's made herself ready. Those that are righteous. You know, Enoch was raptured in his day, but he was raptured out of a very wicked generation, but he was a man of prayer. Elijah was raptured out of his day. He also was in a very wicked day, the days of Jezebel. Very wicked day. He was raptured out of there. Why? Because he had a great anointing and fire on his life. Jesus said, Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, all ten of them were virgins. All ten of them had lamps. All ten of them had oil. But only half of them were ready for the Lord's coming because they had extra oil. So how are you going to be ready? By being righteous, by having a strong prayer life, and by having extra oil in your life. That's the true bride. Okay? And Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. And He's going to take away His bride. Not everybody. There's going to be people left here. He's going to take away His bride. And they're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And while we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb... The earth is going to be going through the 70th week of Daniel, the Great Tribulation. It's going to be difficult times. There will be people that get saved. There will be people that are evangelizing. The 144,000 are going to be evangelizing. Okay? It's not like God has abandoned the earth. These, these teachings about the Holy Spirit leaving, He's not leaving. Nobody ever said that. Where did they get that? He's going to be here. The, the, there's going to be the 144,000 evangelists are, are going to hit the, the whole Middle East and they're going to spread the gospel. There's going to be people getting saved, but it's going to be difficult. It's going to be very difficult times. And many people that are here will have to give their life if they're going to serve and live for the Lord and they're not going to take the mark. They're going to have to give their life. And what you're seeing is a breakdown in society where people more and more and more are crying out for some kind of a Savior. 
But they're not looking to Jesus. They're looking to another Savior. And that's going to be what causes the Antichrist to be able to come to power. More and more and more, you're seeing the world's economy collapsing, making way for a one-world economy. More and more, you're seeing the governments fail the people. And it's going to make way for a unified world government. See, Israel was scattered in 70 AD, but it was supernaturally restored in 1948. See, the Bible prophesied that Israel, Jesus would come back to Israel and he would come back to a temple. And God prophesied to Israel that he would regather them. You understand, we're living in the last days if we're seeing the nation of Israel having their capital city as Jerusalem. 2,000 years, these people were scattered and supernaturally drawn back and had their Hebrew language restored. I mean, it's a miracle. But the Antichrist will rise to power. The first three and a half years will be peaceful. He'll make peace treaties. He's going to arise. Here's what's going to happen. He's going to arise with the false prophet's help by uniting, trying to unite religions. That's Revelation 17. And you're seeing it already in the earth, religions trying to unite. Everybody but true Christianity. Now, what you got to understand is Satan has a counterfeit Christianity. You hear what I'm saying? There's a counterfeit Christianity in the earth that's claiming to be Christianity, claiming to be true Christianity, claiming to be tolerant because, you know, they can be homosexual, they, they can um, be a witch. I mean, it, it goes totally against God's Word, but yet they're, they're saying that this is true Christianity. It's a counterfeit. And what's happening is, is the, the religions of the world, the Antichrist through the false prophets, somehow is going to be able to bring the religions together. And the whole platform that the Antichrist will have is this. He's going to say, let's have peace and tolerance. And that's going to be what brings him to power. And even right now, this is a fact, I don't have time to bog down on it, but right now, the Pope is working really hard to help build a temple in Jerusalem. And it's a very perverted thing, but what he's saying is, he's saying that it will be a house of prayer for all nations. He's quoting the Bible, but this is what he means by this. It's not what we mean. What he means is, is that the Muslim, the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Jew... Every religion can be represented in all of them praying there. And the Pope is the only one that really has the inroads to do this type of thing. He actually even has an inroad into Islam because of their honoring of Mary. They think that Mary is, is going to be Muhammad's wife in the next life or already is or whatever. They also, Fatima was, was one of Muhammad's wives and there was supposedly some apparition of Mary and Fatima. But anyway, they, they have a connection there with Mary, the worship of Mary. And so Pope is working right now. And let me just say this, I love, I love, I love the people that are Mormons or Jehovah's Witness or Catholic or whatever, Buddhists, Hindus, I love them. I want them to be saved. But it's a cult. It's a cult. Just call it what it is. There's only one way, and that's through the shed blood of Jesus. And the problem with the Mormons is they believe that you earn your salvation. The problem with the Jehovah's Witness, they believe you earn it. And the problem with the Catholic Church, there's a lot of problems. Martin Luther found 95. There's more than that. But is they believe that if you're right with the church, you'll go to heaven. Okay? And people that come to know Jesus in the Catholic Church come to know Him in spite of the Catholic Church, not because of it. And that's a problem. 
And so the Catholic Church, don't be surprised if there's not something significant that their influence has to do with this one day, in these last days. It's the only cult that I know of in human history that I, I can even think of that has had world dominance. The only cult. And even to this day, if you, if you talk about things like that, there's people all over the planet and even in Christian churches that will get irritated because there's such a spirit that has blanketed the whole world that the Catholic Church has been able to do because they, they have at one time ruled the world, so to speak. And there's a world-ruling spirit there. You hear what I'm saying? See, modern-day Iraq at one time was Babylon, and before it was Babylon, it was the Tower of Babel was built there, and before that, it was the Garden of Eden. Modern-day Iraq is a place of great rebellion. And God, you have in the, in the book of Revelation, you have Iraq, you have Babylon, and you have Israel continually talked about what's in the news every day. Something about the Middle East, Iraq, and Israel. Let me read something to you and I'm going to close this thing out. A sign of the times. Matthew 24 talks about I'm not going to read the whole thing. But remember it says nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be famines, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, persecution, all the things Jesus said would happen. I want you to look at the frequency of earthquakes. Now given that we didn't have the best way of measuring them, but just estimations. From 1 AD to 1000, there was only 15 recorded earthquakes that were 7.0 or higher. One, uh, supposedly one in every 66 years. From AD 1000 to 1800, there was 114 earthquakes that were 7.0 or higher. One in every seven years. Now what you're seeing with earthquakes, Jesus said that earthquakes would mark the end times and mark His coming. It's just like a woman goes into contractions before birth. The earth is going into contractions. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The Bible says that the, the creation longs for the manifestation of the sons of God. And the fact that Jesus is coming on the horizon, it's like the earth is groaning and there's literally like contractions happening in the Spirit. From 1800 to 1900, there was 115 7.0 or higher. And every 10 months, there was an earthquake. So you're seeing from 66 years, every 7 years, to every 10 months. You're seeing this? In 1935, the Richter scale was invented. And from 1900 to 1980, there was recorded 774, 7.0 or higher, one every 37 days. So you're going from years to days in frequency. From 1980 to the year 2000, there were 255 earthquakes, 7.0 or higher. That's just a short amount of time. That's just 20 years there. So from 1980 to 2000, so the time that we're measuring it is a lot shorter here. Went from 80 years to 20 years. But there was 255 earthquakes that were 7.0 or higher in just 20 years. And there was one recorded every 28 days. Isn't that something? Once a month, there's an earthquake. From 2000 to 2008, that's just eight years now. You're seeing 127 earthquakes, 7.0 or higher, every 26 days. From 2009, I'm sorry, in the year 2009 alone, just one year, there were 17 earthquakes that were 7.0 or higher, one every 21 days. 
In 2010, there were 20 earthquakes. They were 7.0 or higher. One every 18 days. In 2011, this is just three months in 2011, it was measured, just three months, okay? There was already in three months, six earthquakes that were 7.0 or higher. One every 15 days was estimated. So you're looking at an earthquake every 15 days? What you're seeing is a fulfillment of what Jesus said. There's more, more, the earthquakes are more powerful and happening more frequent. Pointing of His coming. And not only that, but look at Haiti. Look at Japan. Look at the massive fault line in California. Look at the massive fault line, really, with the Madrid fault line in our Midwest. Look at the ring of fire around the Pacific. If you look at that, you should Google the ring of fire. And you can see all around the Pacific, from Japan all the way over to our our coast, there's a ring of fire there that's very susceptible to earthquakes. And every time there's an earthquake in the ocean, there's some kind of shimmer down there. It's literally creating these tsunamis. Here's what I want to close with. There's three major main redemptions under Moses. Under the law of Moses, slaves could be redeemed. Somebody became a slave because of neglect, because of irresponsibility, or by misfortune. But nonetheless, they became a slave because they could not pay their debt. Under Hebrew law, after seven years, they had to be released. But for those years, they had to be a slave. But if somebody, a relative or somebody that really cared for them, could come in and could pay their debt, then that legal transaction that made them a slave would be null and void and they would be free. So a slave could be redeemed. A wife could be redeemed. Under Hebrew law, under the nation of Israel, back then, if a man died... His wife became obviously the widow, but she back then it was hard for wives to survive that didn't have husbands or sons. It was hard. It was hard because of the manual labor involved and all of that. And so God so loved women and He so loved the widow that He created this law to where there could be a kinsman redeemer. Where let's say that a man had a wife and he died, he didn't have a son, the brother of that man could marry her and then through relations have a child for his brother and it was called a kinsman redeemer he would bring and it was the story of Ruth and Boaz you know he could bring her into his household and take care of her that was hebrew law and so a wife could be redeemed and then land can be redeemed every 50th year the land was automatically redeemed because of the year of jubilee but during that time if hard times came and somebody lost their land they would lose it because of whatever reason they fell upon hard times. They would lose it. There would be legal transactions that were written up. And it would be sealed. It would be signed. It would be put away. And that land was gone from that family. But somebody could come in and could pay for that. A legal transaction could go in there and could pay for that land to be redeemed back to that family. What I'm trying to show you is, is that Jesus, when He died on the cross, and He brought us unto Him, we were once slaves to sin. But He's redeemed us into the family of God. And when Jesus comes back for a bride without spot or blemish, and He calls that bride unto Himself for the marriage supper, He is redeeming back the wife that was under law. 
And when Jesus finishes popping these seven seals, and the trumpets are done, the trumpet judgments and the bowls, they're done. When He comes back, He has the title deed to the earth, and He's coming back to take the earth back and make it the original paradise that it once was under Adam. Jesus is redeeming it all. When He comes back, it says the lion will lay down with the lamb. Children can play with cobras because the curse that came from sin will be lifted off the earth. The curse that made animals become violent and allowed so much evil and wickedness to happen, all of that curse is going to be lifted and once again is going to be peaceful. See, after the Antichrist is stupid enough to set himself up as God Almighty in the temple, it's going to enrage the Jews. That's the abomination that causes desolation. It's going to enrage the Jews and there's going to be swift violence that's going to break out against Jews. But Jesus... The Jewish people are going to be in a bad situation. They're going to be looking up, crying out for God to save them. And they're saying, send us salvation. And what they don't even realize is, is Yeshua's name itself means salvation. Jesus is going to split the eastern sky and He's going to come down and all the nations, the Bible said, were gathered around the nation of Israel to, to wipe it out. The valley of Megiddo, the battle of Armageddon, they're all going to gather. The kings of the east, those from China, all of those are going to come in and they're going to surround Israel and they're going to try to destroy Israel. And they're going to be backed into a place where they're going to be crying out to God. I can just see them if they can at that western wall. You know, crying out to God. I don't know if it will be open or not. But God is going to respond to that. And Jesus, at the end of that marriage supper of the Lamb, He's going to look over at us and go, Hey, you guys ready to go for a ride? And we're going to come back, the Bible says, on white horses with Him, splitting the eastern sky. And those, those armies that were down here, they had tanks, rocket launchers, all of that. And they're going to turn it and try to shoot it at Jesus. Everybody say, that's stupid. <laughs> Mistake number one. And Jesus, it says, just by the breath of His mouth, the word of His mouth, they're going to be slaughtered right there. And Jesus' feet are going to hit the Mount of Olives just like the angels prophesied and said in like manner He'll come back. His feet are going to hit the Mount of Olives where He's left. It's going to split in two. He's going to go down into the temple that the Antichrist had desecrated. He's going to go down to the temple and He's going to sit there and He's going to reign for a thousand years on the earth. And during that time, He's going to put everything back in order. He's going to clean house. He's going to purify everything. I believe all of that, in my opinion, that's going to happen, the rapture and all that, around Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur time frame, somewhere in there. That's just my opinion. Okay, Seven years later, when Jesus comes back to reign on the earth, it will probably happen around that same time frame. And then after a thousand years of Jesus reigning, probably around the Feast of Tabernacles, the new Jerusalem is going to come down from the sky and is going to tabernacle on the earth. And the Bible says the dwelling of God will be with man and man with God. That's what I want to close with. But see, Jesus right now is popping the seals on its scroll. That's why you're seeing things happen in the earth. Because every time Jesus pops a seal on that scroll, it is sending shockwaves in the spirit realm. And Satan's kingdom, Satan is getting enraged. He knows his time is short. He's trying to do everything he can to stop Jesus from coming. He's trying to stop Bible prophecy. But I'm going to tell you, it don't matter if we pray Bible prophecy or not. It's going to happen. And it don't matter It don't matter if the devil tries to stop it or not, or if man tries to stop it. What has been prophesied in the Bible is going to happen. 
And Satan is trying to stop it. He's trying to wipe out Israel so that there's nothing for Jesus to come back to. He's attacking the church. He's doing everything he can, but Jesus is just steadily popping these seals. And this is what I want to close with because there is a, a, a massive spiritual warfare going on in these last days. And what I want to do is I want to pray for people about this that may need prayer. There are certain spirits that act like gatekeepers in people's lives. Let me explain it. One of them I had preached on. I preached on the spirit of whoredoms. You remember that? The spirit of whoredoms acts like a gatekeeper because it will seduce people into sin. The Bible says in the last days would be seducing spirits. But it will seduce people into sin. Whether it's you know something like sexual or drugs or, or, or whatever it is. It will seduce people into sin. And when they sin, the spirit of whoredoms has acted like a gatekeeper because they have been seduced into sin. The gates of hell open and more can, can start pouring in. Another spirit that acts like a gatekeeper in the Bible is legion. I've dealt with that spirit. I'm sure many have. But that spirit really seems to get into the life of people that were molested when they were young or those that have come out of the occult. But what the spirit of legion does, it wants to defile people. That's why when you saw the man in the Gadarenes, he was in tombs, cutting himself, what he was eating, the way he was living, it was defiling. And see, the spirit of legion will cause somebody to defile themselves, and the more they keep defiling themselves, the more it can bring in. And that's why when Jesus got to the man in the Gadarenes, he was loaded full of demonic spirits in his life. Because legion kept allowing more and more in. Every time he would cut himself, more would come in. Every time he defiled himself, more was coming in. But let me talk to you about a, a spirit of strife what a spirit of strife is, it's a gatekeeper. And it's, it's a serious spirit. It's pretty powerful. One of the things you see with a generational curse, <coughs> you see strife. Now see, my family, we had to battle some generational curses. Before we did, we didn't even know about them, didn't know really how to pray back then. But before we did... My parents were always faithful with tithes and offerings and things like that. So even though there was a curse of poverty there, we still did fine. And it, I, it was one reason. It was because of their faithfulness and tithing. That was it. And God honors the tithe. When you're not stealing from God and you're being faithful, God will rebuke the devourer and pour out blessings. That's what he said he would do. And so our family still did fine. But when we broke a curse of poverty that was there, it exploded. And God, I mean, really started pouring in blessings. I said that to say that there's curses that people deal with in family lines that produces sickness, it produces um, lack, and it also produces this, what I'm about to explain to you. It produces strife. And what you see when there's a curse there in a spirit of strife, you'll see a lot of fighting, strife, contention, bickering, quarreling, Discord, you see divorce, you see rejection, and you see family alienation. Where people split ways and they won't talk for years. Family alienation. 
You'll see families that they can't even get together and have a barbecue without a fight breaking out. And I've known people like that, where they would try to get their family together, and it wasn't two, three hours till there was police sirens. Because, you know, Uncle so-and-so just beat up another one, and that drinking and getting mad, it's a curse. But these powerful generational curses, see, you, you really have to sell out to the Lord. You can't play games. I think a lot of people come to Jesus because they think, well, I don't want to go to hell. But that's not going to keep you. What's going to keep you is your love for God. There's people that say, I don't want to go to hell, and that's why they're with the Lord. But eventually, eventually, if they don't fall in love with the Lord, they're going to fall away. Other people come to the Lord, and they see blessings on other people's lives, and they say, well, I want to be blessed. Well, don't we all? But that's not going to keep you. What's going to keep you is your love for God. And if you love Him, Jesus said, you'll do what I command, meaning that you'll live the life and sell out. So selling out to the Lord and really, really getting all the sin out and being real with God will cause you to start defeating these generational things and really moving into freedom and victory. But what I want to say about strife is what we're going to pray about is what people don't understand is where there has been strife, there is a gate of hell that opens and there's something residue there. Meaning this, if there's a church that there were some people used of the devil and they began to come against the pastor, they began to stir up strife, whatever, and they led a rebellion, they led this, this strife-filled fighting, things were spoken that shouldn't have been said into that church. If somebody doesn't go in behind that mess and spiritually speaking, clean that out, it will stay. And you'll go into that church and you'll try to worship and pray and it'll be heavy. Because nobody has cleansed the atmosphere from that strife. And that strife opened up a gate for the enemy and the enemy has come in and there's things there in that church where there used to not be sickness, now there's maybe sickness. Where there used to not be lack, there's lack and there's hindrances. There's hindering spirits. There's something there. There's hindering spirits there and it's a heaviness. Same thing, you move into a house. There's a lot of things that could have been there before you got there, but just talking about strife alone, if that house was full of strife and you move in, don't think that it's going to be peaceful till you clean it out. And where there's strife there, and it's in the atmosphere, it's a spiritual thing. It's difficult to really get a good night's sleep. It's difficult to have health. Your food does not seem to digest, digest well. It's like you try to sleep at night, but you just, you're uneasy. It's easy to argue, because it's in the atmosphere. It's easy to argue. It's difficult to pray. There's something in the atmosphere. And I'm telling you, that some people, there's, a, there's literally a curse and a spirit that travel down their family line of strife. And let me say this too. The words of our mouth have a lot to do with the way things are. You know, you, people, they have, let's say that there seems to be a curse on a family where there's health problems on a certain area. Let's say there's arthritis. If somebody keeps speaking out of their mouth, well, uncle so-and-so had it, daddy had it, so I guess I'll have it, and they keep saying stuff, they keep saying stupid things, they keep speaking negativity over their joints, 
well, they're just feeling bad and it's just going from bad to worse and they just keep cursing themselves, it's, they're going to have exactly what they're saying. And what they don't realize is, is that they're allowing that generational curse to really set up in them. But the Lord wants to break this stuff. But number one, you've got to clean out that strife and you've got to drive out that spirit. You've got to drive that thing out of people's lives and cleanse the atmosphere. Because in these last days, I'm telling you, is going to be the greatest clash between good and evil. The greatest battle will be in these last days. And we don't need any doors open to the enemy. And see, strife happens. The Bible says pride causes contention. When people cannot just apologize and be humble, that's where strife comes in. If somebody... Remember the story I told you about the two mule deer that were fighting? And they, they had locked horns and they were going to the edge of the cliff. And there was somebody watching them. And they got to the edge of the cliff and both of them were looking down there and they're thinking to themselves, it's not worth both of us dying because if I fall off, I'm taking you. If you fall off, you're taking me. And those two mule deer had enough sense to unlock the horns and walk away in peace. Saying, you know, this just isn't worth it. Somebody's going to die. No, both of us are going down. And they just walked away. If people would have enough sense, whenever, you know, maybe the, let's just say the husband's out of way. If the wife would calm it down. If the wife's out of way, the husband would calm it down. But there needs to be peacemakers there to calm things down so it doesn't keep blowing up into strife. <coughs> Where there's strife, it pollutes the atmosphere and things begin to creep in. So what I want to do is I'm going to pray for people because I feel that there's been strife and God's wanting to help you with it. But a spirit of strife is very serious. It can ruin marriages. And people don't realize it, but a lot of times what they're doing in their very home, what they're doing, the things that they speak, what they're, what they're listening to, what they're watching, what they're drinking, what they're participating in. People that sit around and they're going to run down their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're going to sit there and gossip and slander in a house. You realize that that's polluting the atmosphere. You realize the Holy Ghost is going to leave. And they're sitting here doing stuff in their home and they're releasing all that into the atmosphere. The grumbling, the complaining, the negativity, the pity parties, the bad attitudes. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead you in a prayer about strife. And God's going to break that. Okay. And if you've had stuff in your house, first thing you do is you go through your house and you throw away, get off the property things that don't need to be there. If you've had witchcraft, if you've had drugs, alcohol, you've had uh, sexual perversions like pornography, whatever it is that is there that doesn't need to be there, you need to get it off. Then you go through and you anoint the house and pray over it and bless it and command anything out that's not of God. And God will cleanse the house. Once that happens, there's been many times that I've woke up in my home, many times, countless times, I've woke up in my home feeling the glory of God on me and my body would be just trembling under the glory. See, we want the glory in our home, but it's not going to be there where there's strife and it's not going to be there where there's sin. And your house should be a place where it's easy to pray. 
It's easy to read the Word. You can grow spiritually. Alright. So everybody pray this with me. Father, I ask forgiveness in my life and my ancestors where there's been strife, any bloodshed, violence, hatred, ungodly anger, outbursts of rage, physical fights. It's been full of strife. People have been saying things that were hurtful. I repent. I want to be free. And I ask you today, you said you've redeemed us from the curse of the law. You paid for our deliverance. Just like you paid for my healing. It's your will for me to be free. And I ask you to set me free today. So I take authority. And I break any curse that has to do with strife, divorce, fighting, anger, family alienation, rejection. In any discord or divorce of any kind, I break those curses. And I command any spirits that's been in my life because of these things. You're going to pack your bags, clean up your mess, and get out of my family. And go straight into the abyss. And I ask you, Father, send your angels to send them packing. I thank you for freedom right now. In Jesus' name. So let me speak this over you. Father, I pray the blood of Jesus over their lives where these things have been. Let your Holy Spirit fill these areas and bring change right now to be set in motion. And I speak a blessing over you in Jesus' name. That I speak over you and bless you that peace fill your life. There's no strife. There's no contention. There's no discord. There's no divorce. But I bless you that unity and peace come into your life right now. And I command those spirits are departing. It's been stirring up strife. It's been stirring up rejection against you. I break that right now, that assignment. And I shut that gate of hell and seal it by the blood of Jesus to your life. And I declare that you're free from these things from this day forward. And I want you to speak this out. I'm free. I'm no longer going to have strife. Or anger. Or rejection. Or division in my life. I'm blessed. I'm going to be victorious. And peaceful. My home is going to be peaceful. In Jesus' name. I feel that. This is a little different sermon tonight. What I want to do here in just a moment, we're going to go ahead and shut off recordings. But I want to go ahead and pray if anybody wants prayer about that. Listen, if, you, if you've had things in your family that were strifeful and you know... You can see a pattern in your family of like divorce, family alienation, outburst of anger, can't get along, 
that type of thing and you see it's a pattern in your whole family. We prayed about it. We broke it. If you want me to lay hands and agree with you, I'm going to do that. If you pray about anything else, I'll pray with you as well.